0: Have your Bible with you tonight. We are in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, tonight, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of that chapter, uh, down to verse uh, 9 of that chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, together, if you'd like to read along. It says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And where by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Over the past few Sundays, we've been thinking about how we can know certain things, how we can know the existence of God, and, and how we can know that the Bible is the Word of God. And then last Sunday evening, we thought together about how we could know the Lord Jesus is the Son of God and the evidences that we have for that great truth. But this evening, we want to think about how we can know that salvation is the gift of, of God, And verse 8 of our reading states it explicitly. It says of salvation that it is the gift of God. There's a categorical statement there. Uh, Romans 6.23 reiterates the same truth when it tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there's a big difference, is there not? Between wages and a gift. A wage is something that we have earned, something that we merit, something that we deserve, but a gift is offered purely on the grace or the favor of another. And so we can demand our wages, but we cannot demand a gift. And what we deserve, according to the word of God, is death. The wages of sin is death, both physical death. And eternal death. Uh, But nevertheless, we're told about this gift, the marvelous gift of His grace. And we need to understand this evening that that gift comes to us in the face of a terrible problem. And in the gravity of that problem, God intervened and did something for us that was most marvelous and most amazing and really is a statement of His graciousness and His mercy and His kindness toward us now the first thing i want you to see tonight from our passage is this that man by nature is in trouble with god we see that in verses 1 to 3 of our text you see the problem that you and i face is clearly defined in these opening verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians. And here's the first of those problems stated in verse 1, that you're dead in trespasses and sins. If you're not a Christian, that's where you are tonight. You're dead in trespasses and sins. Now, Paul wrote these words not to a gathering of corpses. He wasn't writing to a funeral home. He was writing to a church church. Full of people. And he says, and you hath he quickened. That's an old English word meaning brought alive. You hath he brought alive who were dead. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. And when he speaks about them being dead or having been dead. He's not suggesting they were physically dead. And now they're raised to life again. But he's stating a truth that they were spiritually dead. That they were separated from God. That's what the word death means. To die is to be separated. To die eternally is to be separated from God. And that separation began, really, at the moment of our conception. The psalmist says this, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Isn't that a remarkable thing? Even before you were born, even before you took your first breath outside the womb, you were already in sin. You were already shaped in that sense. And again, the psalmist says in Psalm 58 and 3, the wicked are estranged, separated from the womb. He's not talking about the physical separation, but he's talking about a spiritual separation from God. He says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Now, that's a tremendous uh, truth when you think about it, that a person, as soon as they're born, begins to speak lies. Now, you may say, well, how could that be? You know, you can't even speak till you're about a year old or so and you start formulating a few words here and there how could it be possible that you could lie well friends if those of you who have had children and those who have children will know too well from this experience. You know a little baby comes into the world and it's the cutest little thing. You've never seen a baby yet that uh, wasn't cute and that you didn't, uh, uh, didn't uh, love and, uh, and were glad to have. And you look at this little one and you think butter wouldn't melt in its mouth. It's the, it's the greatest little thing that ever happened to you. And uh, that little baby cries for three things. It cries if it's hungry. Uh, it cries if it's dirty. It needs a snappy change. And it cries if it's unwell, if it's in pain or it's sick. And, and so a mother and a father get to understand those cries and respond to those cries. But there comes an evening not very long after the child's birth when the baby lets out a cry in the middle of the night and the mom or dad goes into, uh, into the nursery, into the child's bedroom and, uh, and checks the nappy and the nappy's okay and you know it's only been an hour or so since the baby was fed and there's no temperature and there's nothing that was suggested. The baby's in pain or is ill, and so you look at this little baby and you wonder what in the world is he or she doing? Why is she crying at three o'clock in the morning? And she looks at you with a big smile that says, "Do you want to play?" What is that baby doing? That baby is lying. He or she is sent out a distress signal. It says to mom or dad, "I'm hungry. I'm dirty." I'm in pain, I need help, I'm vulnerable, attend to me. And when you attend to that child, there's none of those things. You see, the child goes astray and estranged from the womb as soon as they be born, speaking lies. You know, you never have to teach your children to lie. I never had to teach any of my children to lie. I found they could all lie perfectly well all by themselves. Did you find that out if you were a parent? Huh? Even in the godliest of homes, you know, children uh, children lie. They lie. I remember one time uh, my daughter was caught in a lie, and it was quite evident that she had lied, and, and it came down to, uh, you know, just her. She was the only person who could be possibly responsible for the thing that she was in trouble for. And I said, now, who did this? And she looked up, and there was a spider in the wall, and she said, the spider did it. <laughs> she lied. And it came naturally. I never had to say to her, this is how you do it. This is how to deceive a teacher. This is how to lie to your brothers or sisters. This is how to lie uh, to your parents. No, it came naturally. You're not a sinner, friend, because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's the reality. You'll do what your nature has conditioned you uh, to do. And you will sin because you're a sinner. And that's your problem. And outside of Christ, there's nothing you can do about that to fix that problem. Not only are you dead and trespasses and sins, but you're governed by the spirit of this world. In verse 2 where in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Look at that first part. You walk according to the course of this world. Uh, the next verse talks about how we all had our conversation, our lifestyle in that way in times past, following the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, we do what everybody else in the world does. We go the way the world is going. We are really part and parcel of what the world is. We all are agreed that the world is a terrible place. But let me explain to you that if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you are walking according to the course of this world. You're no different from anyone else. You're part of the problem, not part of the solution. Understand that a man who is a friend of the world is instantly the enemy of God. The Bible says in the book of James, friendship of the world is enmity with God, is hostility towards God. You've declared war upon God. That's your nature. You come into this world and you're opposed to every thought of God. You're opposed to the things of God. That's why it is when you're not a Christian and someone invites you to church, you think of any number of reasons why you can't possibly go That's how I was before I was a Christian. Go to church? No, i got other things to do. Go to church? No, I've got people to see. Go to church? No, listen, there's something good on television tonight. I don't want to be going. There was always some reason why I didn't want to go to church. Why I didn't want to be around Christians. Why I was nervous around preachers. By nature, you're hostile toward the uh, things of God and toward God. And uh, and James goes on and says, Whosoever therefore will be a friend of this world is the enemy of God. You see the problem you have? You're hoping someday to get into God's heaven, but here God declares you as an arch enemy. He puts you on the other side. He sets you in a juxtaposition to himself, and he says, you're not getting in. And he says in verse 3, uh, verse 2, rather, you're a child of the devil. He says you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now, this is a shocker. Because most people who come into this world are somehow or other convinced that they must be children of God by nature of their physical birth that that somehow, some ways, because they're part of God's creation, they must therefore be part of God's family and yet the Bible says the opposite is true, that far from following God by nature, we lived according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the God of this world, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That's where you are tonight if you're not a Christian. You're not in God's family. You're in the family of Satan. You're in the devil's family the gospel of John in chapter 8 and verse 44 the Lord Jesus Christ states it well he says "Ye are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father he will do he says he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he's a liar and the father of it. Now we laugh at that little idea of a baby lying in its cot, calling on its mother or its father on false pretences and suggesting that it's in some distress in order to get attention and to have a have a little time of fun with its parents. But actually, when that child behaves in that way, it's not just it's not cute. Rather, it reveals its true nature. It tells us that that child has a spiritual father, the father of lies. You're off the father of the devil. The lust of your father, he will do. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, and he's a liar and the father of it. Oh, my goodness, what trouble we're in. How any man or any woman who recognizes themselves as a child of the devil expects a place in God's heaven is really beyond me. It's most unreasonable. And then fourthly, we see here in verse 3 that you're a child of wrath. It says there at the end of that verse, having detailed the lust of our flesh and the desires of the flesh and of the mind as being contrary to the nature of God that we are by nature the children of wrath, even as others. What does that mean? It means as a sinner. It means as a child of the devil. It means as one who is sold out to the world. It means as one who is hostile. It means as one who is opposed to the truth of God, that there's only one place you can go in all of eternity. If you die in your sin and that's to go to hell, you're a child of wrath. That's the simple truth of it. And that's why Jesus said there are more people on the broad way that leads to destruction than on the narrow way that leads to life. And that, my friends, is why the Lord Jesus came. The Bible says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Lord Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Bible says that God commendeth his love toward us. He manifest his love. He showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He saw the trouble we were in. He saw the predicament we were in. He saw the fix that we were in. He saw the trouble you were in, the predicament you were in, the fix that you were in. He saw that there was no way in all, and and, and there's no way in any sense that you and I in that state, you and I as being sinners, you and I as being naturally born as children of the devil who follow the spirit of this world, who are children of wrath. There was no way we were getting into God's heaven. So the Lord Jesus reached out to us. And the truth is that if we had been and are left to ourselves, we're in terrible trouble with God. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, let me be very clear with you tonight. You are in trouble with God. You're in trouble with God. Now, man's solution to his sin problem is good works, in religion. Somehow we get it in our heads that, well, if we just try a little harder, if we just do a little bit more good and a little less evil in our lives, that the good that we do will outweigh any sin that we're involved with and it will all turn out all right in the end. But it won't. And I'll tell you why. First of all, because the Bible says so. Right here in Romans or Ephesians two, eight and nine it says, For by grace are you saved through faith and not not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Notice what verse nine says, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of effort that will satisfy. There's no religion you may join. There's no religious ritual that you can undergo that will somehow uh, take care of your soul's need. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. There it is in black and white. God says he will not accept your works against your sin debt. There's no amount of human effort that he will accept in lieu of your sin debt. You say, oh, pastor, you don't understand if I do the best I can. You know I appreciate I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. I appreciate that I've sinned. And I appreciate there's things in my life. That I'm ashamed of. And that I've done wrong. Who hasn't? But surely if I try my best. Surely if I do my best. It'll, it'll come good in the end. God will see the sincerity of my heart. And, and he will open heaven's door to me. I rather liken this. If you can imagine such a thing. Imagine going away on holiday, a man and a couple, and they're away in Donegal on holiday. And the husband's looking out to sea, he's looking out across the Atlantic Ocean, and he thinks to himself, you know what, on the other side of that ocean is Newfoundland. It's Canada. I've always wanted to go to Canada. And suddenly he jumps into the water, and he starts swimming out into the depths of the Atlantic. And his wife looks at him and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to Canada. And she says, don't be daft. You, you're not that strong a swimmer. And he says, don't you worry about me, love. I'm going to Canada. And he keeps, keeps swimming in that direction. And his wife says, have you taken leave of your senses? How, what in the world makes you think that you're going to be able to swim the Atlantic Ocean and get to Canada? And he looks back at her and he says, but I'm doing the best that I can doesn't matter if he does the best he can. The chasm between the west of Ireland and the east coast of Canada is so great that no man, no matter how capable he may be, is able to cross it, able to traverse it. And so it is in the gap between uh, between heaven and earth, between man and God. Such is the chasm between them that there's not a man, no matter how noble he may be, no matter how highly he's thought of, no matter how committed he is to good living. can possibly bridge that gap between god and himself god is not going to accept your works you say well why wouldn't god accept my works you know why wouldn't he just let me do the best i can and let me into heaven when i die well i want to give you a number of reasons first of all because our good works are rooted in self good works by their nature feed into our ego they play into our pride. They make us feel good about ourselves, and and cause me to see myself in a way that is completely the opposite of how God sees me. Do you ever do something good as mankind's goodness? Maybe you're, you know, maybe you're at the at the uh, at, at, a, at the counter of a shop, and you see a little charity box there. You drop a couple of pounds in the charity box. And you walk out like, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. Look at me. I've helped all those poor people with my two pounds. You feel good about yourself. Or you do something else. You feel good about yourself. You know, that's the nature of good works. They give me cause to boast. That's what verse 9 says, that God won't accept our works because if if he does, then man would boast not of works, lest any man should boast. We begin to think of ourselves as better than others, as holier than I. I I take on the persona of the proverbial Pharisee whom Jesus spoke of when he says he prayed, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, this sinner that was standing beside him. He said, I'm glad I'm not like him. Friends, listen to me. There's always somebody you can look down on. You know, I've had occasion to visit prisons over the years in the course of my ministry, and I always find prisoners who consider themselves either to be completely innocent and in the wrong place, or they consider themselves to be better than other prisoners who are in the same position as they are. There's always somebody that you can look down on, but there's also always someone you must look up to, someone who's doing better than ourselves. Listen, we have nothing to brag about. That's why the Word of God says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in Isaiah 64 and 6. And all the good that we do are are as filthy rags. You know, that's the testimony of the returning Jews. The Jews in Isaiah are prophesied to go into exile and and go into exile as a judgment of God against them for their sin of idolatry against the Lord. And, And they're sent off to Babylon for 70 years. And God predicts that when they return to the land at the end of their exile, that they will say, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That will be their testimony before God judged them. They saw themselves as pretty good people. After God judged them, they saw themselves quite differently. They saw that their righteousness, their own efforts, their rituals, their ceremonies were nothing but done as filthy rags, literally as a soiled menstrual cloth. That's a, a, you know, a pretty unpleasant item, and yet that's how they viewed their sin and their, and their lives. Before God. All our righteousness as they testify are as filthy rags. And they go on and say we do all fade as a leaf. You know when you think about a, a dying leaf has no strength. We're in that time of year where there's not a leaf on the trees. Autumn has passed and winter has come. And, and you remember that uh, just before the, the, uh, the December there came in. There was a, a storm came through. And whatever leaves that were dangling on the trees were largely blown off. A fearing leaf has no strength. It's easily blown from its tree. You know, sin has a way of enfeebling us, and that's how they feud themselves. These people returning from exile, they said, we have nothing to offer in the face of God's righteousness. We have nothing to offer in the face of God's judgment upon us. We're like a fearing leaf. We've got no strength. And the Bible says that yet when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. You've got no strength. You can't stand before God and argue from a position of strength. You can't come into his presence and say, God, look what I did and look at who I am and look what I gave. Look what I supported. Well, it says he not have that. We have to be like Augustus top lady who wrote, to Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Simp- naked came to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. File I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And secondly, God's uh, good works can never address uh, the sin in our lives. You think about this. If, if good works could get you into heaven, why would God send his son to earth to die on a cross for you? That makes no sense. And you know that good works really don't address sin in our lives. You know, this week there's been a bit of a furore in the news, hasn't there? Because uh, the queen, in her New Year's honors, uh, gave a knighthood uh, to the former prime minister, Tony Blair and a million people, over a million people have now signed a petition uh, requesting that this knighthood not be given to him, that he be stripped of that knighthood. And you have to look at this. This is a man who served, I think, uh, something like 12 years as Prime Minister. He was three terms. He was elected. You know, he was a popular politician in his day. He must have done the country some good to be re elected twice after his initial election. People must have thought something of him to bring him back into office again and again. But now, of course, with hindsight, People look back and they see that here was a man who lied to his own, uh, to his own advantage. Here was a man who twisted the truth and, and sent our troops into a war that is now being deemed illegal and who caused the death not only of many thousands of British soldiers uh, but also many tens of thousands of Iraqi citizens. and people are saying, "Well look, we're not, we don 't want that man to have an award." Well you can say, "Well, what about the good he did the country?" What about the economy? What about the good laws that he brought in? People aren't interested in the good laws. All they remember is that he deceived them. You think about Jimmy Savile. You know, Jimmy Savile, when you think about him here, was a man who raised millions for worthy causes. I think he raised something like 40 million pounds for worthy causes. He built hospital wards. He, he equipped uh, entire wards with important machinery that would save lives all out of his own pocket. Uh, and yet we now know that following his death, he was a terrible uh, a sexual predator who preyed on the young and the sick and the elderly. Well, here's the thing, and I would put it to you. If good works uh, will somehow erase your evil works, well, surely Jimmy Savile should be in heaven because he's done far more good for people than he did for the few that he molested. In other words, there are people even yet benefiting from Jimmy Savile's sacrifices and from his giving. Even now, lives are being saved because of the things that he provided. And yet with all, if I were to suggest to you that Jimmy Savile was a good man rather than a bad, man, if I was to suggest to you that the good things he did outweigh the bad things that he did, you would say to me, not so. And you'd be right. You'd be right. Now, if that's true of Jimmy Sowell, why is it not true of you? You say, oh, my sins aren't as bad as his. They're bad enough to take Jesus to the cross. You say, my sins aren't as offensive as his. They're as offensive enough for God to send you to hell for them. If that's true in the, in the court of human justice, how much more true is it in God's perfect course, court of justice? Your good works can never address the sin in our lives. And then we find in Scripture the penalty of sin is death. It's not good works. Scripture is clear, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You know, the the Bible is clear the day that God says to Adam and Eve, the day thou eatest thereof, eatest of the tree, thou shalt surely die. James says that when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The wages of sin is death, says the Bible. The wages of sin is not good works. The wages of sin is not penance. The weeds of sin is not religious activity. The weeds of sin is not charitable efforts. The weeds of sin is death. And there's nothing you can do to avoid that death because you've sinned. And then I would say to you that the good that you do do, listen to me now, is simply not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not that man is as bad as he can be, but he's certainly as bad off as he can be. And it's not that men don't do some things that are good. Even the Bible recognizes that sometimes God's enemies did good things. But here's the deal. The good that you do is not good enough. You see, if you want to please God, if you want to do good by keeping his commandments and, and obeying his word, you have to keep the whole law. You must be perfect. You know, James says that if a man keeps the whole law and fails in one part, he's he's guilty of all. It's like a chain, you know, if you have a necklace or you have a, a bracelet and you break just one link in the chain. You don't just say, my link is broken. You say the chain is broken. The whole thing is ruined. And the Bible says, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one part, he is guilty of all. The whole of the law comes down upon us. Jesus said this in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, Be ye perfect, therefore, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see the standard? The standard isn't being good. The standard is being perfect. Are you really going to stand before God and say, I'm perfect? Now, this is idea this idea of being perfect is so shocking and in Jesus' words there in that, in that Sermon on the Mount that some preachers say, well, the word perfect there doesn't actually mean perfect. It's just relative, it just has to do with maturity. Actually, it means perfect. You have to be perfect. There must be perfect conformity to all of God's demands, all of, all of which Jesus clarifies in his sermon. He says to them, in effect, as he gets to that part of the sermon, he says to make it into my kingdom, you must never lust. You must always be faithful and honest, never deceptive, never vengeful, always loving, never hateful. You have to be absolutely perfect, as perfect as the heavenly Father himself. The standard is not other people. You see, the Bible says that Sometimes we comparing ourselves with ourselves are not ways. We look at other people and we say, well, he's the standard. I'm better than him. But the Bible says, no, he's not the standard. God is the standard. Christ is the standard. That's why the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us has fallen short of his standards. And, and friends, if good works could get us into heaven, I'll say it again, God would never have sent his son to die for you. Never. But he did. Why? Because you need him. So man's solution to man's problem, good works, simply fall short. But God's solution to our problem is his grace. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Um, let me just get there. I'm going to misquote that, would you believe? For by grace are you saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, grace comes In the form of a person. Grace comes in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know John introducing Jesus to us. In his gospel says the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. Since says you want to see grace in action. Have a look at Jesus. You want to see grace animated. Have a look at Jesus. You want to see grace at work? Have a look at Jesus. And by his grace, God affords us the gift of life eternal. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul says this. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. He says, for until the law sin was in the world but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death The wages of sin reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. It could be argued that others didn't do as badly as Adam did, but nevertheless they did sin, and nevertheless death reigned upon them. He says, even after the even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who's the figure of him that was to come? But not as the offense so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more, now listen, the grace of God, and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. It is the gift of God. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, some people get caught up in the faith element of this, and maybe you're that person. You know, I've had people say, and I'm sure other Christian people here would testify to the same thing. That I've had people say to me, well, I wish I had your faith. As As if somehow I've got some kind of special faith that other people don't have. As if somehow or other, you know, I have this virtue that merits me becoming a child of God. Now, for sure, we must exercise faith. We must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But God is not requiring you to commit some kind of immense act of faith. For Christ, my friends, is a sure thing. I was just thinking about this this afternoon and I was thinking about how people exercise faith in different ways and, and you know what? One of the things that you'll never catch me doing, Not in, a, in fact, if you catch me doing this, stop me, okay? Bungee jumping. What possesses people to attach their bodies to a huge rubber band and launch themselves off cranes or cliffs or bridges I do not know. That takes immense faith. You're trusting that the brand or the rope isn't going to snap. You're trusting that, they, that the guy who's measured the thing out has got it just right so that your head doesn't smash into the ground beneath. There was a fellow a number of years ago and they they dangled him off a, 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 a crane at Harland and Wolff he did a bungee jump and they miscalculated and his face smashed into the, into the lock. He looked like he, he'd run into the back of a bus. His eyes were closed, his head was swollen. It takes faith to do a bungee jump. You know, my wife turned 30. She wanted to do something interesting with her life and she decided that she'd do a parachute jump. I don't know what possessed her. Nothing would convince me to jump out of an airplane. Nothing. You know, the Wright brothers didn't do all that work so as you could jump out of the thing. Anyway, she went up on this little plane. She had a parachute attached to her back. She got out onto the wing all by herself. And she leapt out into open air trusting that the parachute was going to open. Thankfully, it did open. But there was immense faith there. I don't have that kind of faith. Don't come to me and say, Oh, I wish I had your faith. I don't have enough faith to jump off a bungee. I don't have enough faith to jump out of an aircraft. There's lots of things that my faith would never allow me to do because I simply don't have enough faith in those areas. But I'll tell you this, if you're going to trust Christ, you don't need a lot of faith. The Lord Jesus says you need faith as, as a mustard seed, just the littlest degree of faith. If you'll exercise the smallest ounce of faith, he'll save you. And he's a sure thing. He's not going to let you down. Faith is just the means of salvation, friends. It's not the source of salvation. It's like this. If you use a hose to put out a fire, what puts out the fire? The hose or the water? Well, obviously it's the water and not the hose. Faith is like the hose. Grace is like the water. In other words, faith is just the vehicle through which grace flows. You may say, well, I'm not sure if I have enough faith. As if somehow God deals in faith like a currency. As if he has some kind of counter at which you stand and, and you say, God, well, I have this much faith. And he says, sorry, you don't have enough faith today. You come back and, and come back another day when you've got enough faith. No, that's not the way God operates. Salvation is never given as a reward for faith. Salvation is given as a gift of God's grace. And it comes in the person and in the ministry and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. Paul made an interesting observation. And let's look at this. This is the last thing we're going to look at. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Paul made an interesting observation about grace and works. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. He says this, he's speaking of Abraham, we talked about this moment this morning in our morning service, Genesis chapter 17, in referencing Abraham's faith, the fact that he was justified by his belief in the things that God said to him. Verse 4 says, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of death. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, Paul is saying, if you work for someone, will you place that person in your debt? If you do a job, you're placing your employer in a debt. He owes you. You work all week. You, you You get your pay. Are you suggesting to me that the company you work for, the person you work for, when he pays you at the end of, you know, a 35-hour week or however long you've worked, that he's giving you a gift somehow? He's not giving you a gift. He pays you what he owes you for your service. Now, here's the thing. God is no man's debtor. God's never going to be in your debt or my debt. He's never going to be able to go before God and say, Now, God, you owe me. You owe me. It's not going to be possible. You're not going to be able to hold him over a barrel and and demand from him. You know, every form of religion teaches a, a sinner that he must do something in order to be saved. That if he does this or he does that, that God somehow is going to be indebted to him. That God somehow must open up heaven to him because he's done all of these various religious things. Do you really think that's going to work? you imagine a man coming before God and, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? And he says, because I was baptized, because when I was a baby, somebody came along and sprinkled a little water on my head and, and gave me an aim. Or somebody took me and immersed me in a tank of water. You know, that's what I did, God you think that God is going to look at what his son did on the cross at Calvary? Do you think he's going to look at the sufferings of Christ? Do you think he's going to look at those kneel scarred hands? Do you think he's going to look back and think about the blood that was shed to get your soul into heaven and say, well, your baptism is far better than what he did? What a silliness. What a nonsense. Well, I go to church. I believe for you, the devil goes to church. The devils at every service. Why should you get in and he not get in? Oh, well, you don't understand. I, I give to charity. Really, you think that you're giving to charity is going to somehow outdo God giving His Son? I'm kind to my neighbors. I've no doubt that you are. But will your kindness... Somehow outweigh outweigh the kindness of God in giving His only begotten Son to the cross at Calvary for your sin. You, you maybe even you suffer a little bit. Maybe you've come before God and say, "Well, God, I, I've had some suffering in my life," or maybe you've deliberately suffered. Maybe you even say, "Well, listen, I, I went on a pilgrimage. I, I walked up Crookpatrick barefoot, and my feet were bleeding and sore when I got to the top." Do you think that God's going to look at that and say, "Well, listen, what you've done far away what?" Jesus did? Of course not. Of course not. Friends, I want you to understand salvation is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. And it's offered to you as a gift of his grace. And it comes that way or it doesn't come at all. You know, last week, I stepped on board an aircraft, bound for Belfast. And as I was about to get on that plane, I had a strange thought. You know, you often have—I often have strange thoughts when I'm getting on airplanes. Particularly this one. I think I'm going to die. Uh, so I don't like flying. So I'm standing there, and everybody's chatting, and you know, and at the gate, ready to get on board the aircraft. And I thought to myself, you know, we could—all of us—could be 15 minutes or less. From death. (laughs) Do you want to go on holiday with me? Probably not. Uh, I thought myself, you know, 15 minutes from now, this plane could come down. We could all be dead. Strange thought. But I stepped onto that plane anyway. A metal tube with wings. That's what a plane is. It's a big metal can with wings. And I stepped on and you say, well, why did you get on it? Well, first of all, I trusted the manufacturers of the aircraft. I'm not sure who made that plane, but suppose it's Boeing. I trusted the people who work at Boeing that they had got all of the rivets in place and welded all the necessary uh, joints and uh, put all the parts together in such a way that this craft would fly. I trusted the science of aeronautics. I, I trusted the guys in the back room with their calculators and their drawing boards and their uh, and, and their design and and they, their knowledge of aeronautics. I, I trusted them. I believed that they got it right. And then I trusted the pilot. No, I'd never met the pilot. It might have been his first flight. You never have a pilot tell you it's his first flight, do you? Huh? Never comes on and says, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is the first flight I've ever had. (laughs) He never tells you that. But it could be his first flight. I don't know the man. He could be a lunatic for all I know. But I trusted that pilot. And not only did I trust the pilot who flew the plane, I trusted the engineers who maintained the plane in the previous landing. Who came out and checked that it had enough fuel? Who came out and checked all of the joints and the bearings and everything that was necessary uh, to make that plane fly? I trusted those uh, engineers. I trusted the air traffic control people. There's an unseen figure in a tower who's up there looking at a screen that has little green dots or red dots or whatever color they are going across that screen. And he's making sure that one flight doesn't crash into another. I trusted that. I don't even know who that person is. He could be having a cup of tea. He could be sitting on his phone playing Angry Birds. I don't know what he's doing up there. But I stepped onto that plane. And I exercised faith in the person in the air traffic control tower, both in Liverpool and in Belfast. I even trusted the people on the ground, the ground staff who ushered me onto the plane. I trusted they were putting me on the right plane. They weren't putting me on a plane to Beijing or someplace, but Belfast. And I trusted the meteorologists who gave the weather forecast that said it was safe that day for that plane to fly. And all through the week, we trust all kinds of people We trust the doctor who, uh, when we go to him with our ailment, we put our, our life in his hands. We trust that man. Uh, we trust him to cure us. I, I trust the lawyer uh, who leaves my uh, when I leave my case in his hands. I I trust him to plead my case. I believe in the in the person at the bank when I deposit money with that individual. I trust them. I believe that they're going to put it in the safe and keep it for me for a later date. You see, all the time you and I are exercising faith. Faith is no big deal, but grace. Is a big deal. And I believe tonight, as you should, in my Savior and in His good favor, in His grace toward me, when I put my helpless, hopeless case in His hands and I commit my soul unto Him. And trust him to do for me what I could never do for myself. To save me from my sin and to gift me with his life eternal. Friend, I want to say to you tonight, there is a savior from sin and you can trust him. Come to Christ tonight believe on Christ tonight. Acknowledge your sin before him. Accept that he died in your place. Believe that he rose the third day and call upon his name to save you. And he will. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening. Shall we?